Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Mueller has come and, well, I don't know if he's gone yet, but uh, he's back in the private sector. Um, we've got the bar summary of the Mueller report. It's an entire four pages, and it's four dense pages, Rick. This is four pages. we got a big show. We're going to be talking to uh, Janet Napolitano, former governor of Arizona, former secretary of Homeland Security, and the current president of uh, the University of California. got a lot to talk to her about. Uh, but I, I, I do want to touch on, you know, what, what is the big news here? Uh, the, the Mueller report apparently finds that when the president said no collusion, well, I guess there was no collusion. No collusion, uh, no obstruction prosecution, although well, we, that's we know a that's a nuanced yeah, question. Have to get into that, and yeah. the president claims exoneration. There is no exoneration in this, and it's till or unless we see the full report, we only have the attorney general's word for this. But the bottom line, John, is the president feels vindicated and he kind of has a right to feel vindicated because it's harder to it's hard to imagine anyone making a, a real case for collusion once Mueller spent two years trying to and says according to the attorney general that he didn't find anything yeah and it is striking you still hear uh, Democrats Adam Schiff uh, was out on on I mean within hours of, of this news coming out saying he still believes uh, that there was collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign I think I don't know. This will be something I'd be actually very interesting, interested to hear what Janet Napolitano has to say about this. But it seems like clearly there's a legitimate battle uh, to be waged here uh, about getting the Mueller report or as much of it as possible made public. Clearly, there are continuing discussions that should happen um, out of perhaps the, uh, the Judiciary Committees in the House and Senate on the question of obstruction of justice, which was not answered uh, by Mueller himself. But but the big question is, is it time for Democrats to turn the page on the collusion argument? And is it also, even on those other two questions, Rick, is it time for Democrats? Certainly, there's like I said, there's a legitimate battle to be waged. But how central should that be right now? Should that be something that, uh, you know, the House Judiciary Committee beats the drums on totally within their uh, their, their their framework? But but. Should it really be a central focus of the Democratic Party and the 2020 candidates? So there's a short term to this and a long term. And the short term to this is that there's going to still be a flurry of let's see the final report, which I think is a legitimate request. Sure. Let's see what's, what the underlying evidence is and was. Also uh, legitimate. Let's bring Attorney General Barr to Capitol Hill to talk about his decision. Also legitimate. Because it was his decision to not prosecute and what that was based on because we've seen other people, including the former FBI director, James Comey, who we know has a bit of a dog in this fight, saying that uh, that Mueller should have made this decision on his own about obstruction of justice. Do we get to hear from Mueller? I mean, can, is Mueller going to testify? I think that's legitimate as well. This has been talked about as kind of a last-ditch option, but I wonder how central the it's going to be now. I mean, don't depending you really on what the report is. Hear from I think it Robert depends. Mueller? I think it depends on the report. I, I I certainly want to. We haven't heard the guy's voice in two years. It'd be interesting to. I, it just seems to me you you want to hear what the yeah. guy has to say. And and yeah. and the first question is: Did Attorney General Barr accurately uh, describe your findings? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I just think you, I think you want to hear, and you should hear. Congress has a right. The American people have a right. Yeah. To hear directly from Robert Mueller. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, that Barr, you know, was deceptive in his four pages and we can't trust him or any of that. I'm just saying, no, it's fine. But 
don't you want to hear from the guy that's been investigating this for 22 was, months? 100%. And there was one really intriguing phrase in that dense four pages, John, where, where Barr says that most of the evidence around obstruction was already in the public realm. That means that, that there's means some, some that wasn't. wasn't. That, so I, I'd so love to know. know? Yeah. I'd love to know that. I, you know. Um, so, so, that's, so that to me is the short term, right? So, so then to get to the long term question, your question about what the 2020ers, uh, they are not just ready to move on. They have already moved on. They recognize, and many of them said this before Mueller, that there were too many hopes and, and expectations funneled into Mueller, that if Mueller came back with the goods, it would have been maybe a pleasant surprise for people that want to see President Trump out of office. But they didn't really have their, their hopes up that high. And let me tell you, you know how long it is between now and Election Day, John? Um, it's, it's, it's definitely a while. I mean, 20 months. You know okay, how long Mueller months. lasted? 20 Two months. 22 months. That's so we have about as much time between now and next November as the entirety of the Mueller era. I kind of feel like a lot of things are going to happen in that time that have nothing to do with the Russian investigation, nothing to do with Bob Mueller. And the 2020 candidates that are eager to talk about the big issues, including the issues that dominated the midterms last year, they want to move on and they are ready to move on. And in some ways, this, this presses reset on 2020 with the president getting a bit of an advantage. By the way, I, I, I mean, you don't mind if I bring up something that I said, do you? Uh, I rarely mind. Okay, okay. Depends so, on what's about me. Because I, I, I totally agree that one of the issues here, one of the challenges that Democrats have is the expectations were so out of whack about what uh, we would ultimately get from Robert Mueller and the uh, and the Mueller report and all this. And, and I understand there's still more that we have, we have yet to see. But I don't know if you remember uh, back in January – um, on, on on this week, uh, I addressed this issue directly, and I actually got I got attacked by a lot of different directions for what I said. But let me just play a little clip of what I said. Context here: This is at peak Mueller frenzy expectation. January, the date was January thirteenth. Uh, the New York Times had just run a story about how there had been a counterintelligence investigation to see whether or not the the president was effectively a a, a Russian agent. Um, the Washington Post had an alarming story about the president's uh, secret conversations uh, with uh, with Vladimir Putin. And I said this. What I am getting is that this is all building up to the Mueller report and raising expectations of a bombshell report. And there have been expectations that have been building, of course, for over a year on this. But people who are closest uh, to, to what Mueller has been doing, who have interacted with the special counsel, caution me that this report is almost certain to be anticlimactic. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, I some people have pointed out that I, I, I mispronounced uh, anticlimactic. Um, <laughs> But the, the, um, the little details. Um, Let's just say it for the record. You know that this report did not exonerate or vindicate the president. No, but it did exonerate and vindicate <laughs> John Carl in that pronouncement. No one was saying that at the time. And but I think you know, on the same Sunday, um, Carl Bernstein was on CNN, <clears throat> reliable sources, and he said that his sources uh, had told him that a rough draft of the Mueller report showed that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Uh, had conspired to undermine American national security. <laughs> now, it wasn't even like collusion with the campaign. It was like Trump and Putin. Um, and uh, But anyway. So a very rough draft. Yes, right? a very, 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 very rough, rough draft. draft. Certainly in rewrite. Look, I actually think Democrats mm-hmm. would have been really wise to listen to that and temper expectations a bit over the previous couple of months. Uh, this is my, my thinking on it is when, when Americans saw Robert De Niro every Saturday night playing Bob Mueller, he was right. cast as this figure that was going to save the country from 
from Donald Trump. Yeah. And the, the, the reality is Bob Mueller is a by-the-books guy, he, the former FBI director, former longtime prosecutor. Was he going to go out and indict the president himself? Probably not. Was he going to say the president flat out committed a crime that is an impeachable offense? Ultimately not. I think all of that was a long shot and people never had – look, there was so much smoke here but there was never any fire and that's what Mueller ultimately appears to have judged. But the ju- weird judged. thing in all this is it wasn't just the Democrats that were building the expectations. It was the president of the United States. Uh, Trump acted like a guy who thought that Mueller was going to come down on him like a ton of bricks. Even last week, Rick, when he was saying, I don't know, you know, a, a deputy, you know, appoints somebody, and now he writes a report. How is this fair? And, you know, the witch hunt, the uh, the 17 angry Democrats, all of that. So I had a chance to ask the president about this on Monday. News still fresh about this report. Here's how it went in the Oval Office. Mr. President, so d- did this turn out to not be a witch hunt after all? You think Robert Mueller did a... It's lasted a long time. We're glad it's over. It's uh, 100% the way it should have been. I wish it could have gone a lot sooner, a lot quicker. Uh, there are a lot of people out there that have done some very, very evil things, very bad things. I would say treasonous things uh, against our country. We can never let this happen to another president again. I can tell you that. I say it very strongly. Uh, Very few people I know could have handled it. We can never, ever let this happen to another president again. So I also asked him earlier if he thought that Mueller was honorable in how he handled this. And he told me, uh, uh, yes, yes, I do. I think he was honorable. So, uh, you know, I, I also think, Rick, that as you listen to the president's words, he's not exactly banging the drum and, 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 and you know, glorying in this vindication after this thorough investigation. He's still really bitter about this investigation. And he's not attacking Mueller right now. But he's attacking everybody else. And I think he's moving already from vindication to weaponization. He is taking the the reality as perceived so far of the Mueller report and saying, well, let's investigate how this all started. Let's get at the underlying documents. Let's get at the the Steele dossier and how that ended up in the bloodstream. Let's get at the Democrats and the Obama administration who launched the inquiry that got people suspicious about their president. And he's going to ignore months and months and months of lies and misdeeds and convictions even of close associates because it does not appear that, that Mueller had something on this question of collusion. This became a lot more than collusion, but that's where things ended up. And I feel like you're you're already seeing the machinery of the Republican Party, the allies on Capitol Hill, who are ready to launch new investigations to say Mueller is – Mueller justified, vindicated, and now we got to find out what really happened here. You know it's going to be a chant at Trump rallies, including, I would guess, tomorrow night in Michigan. You know the president is going to be talking about this, and you can imagine no collusion, no obstruction being – does that work in a chant? I haven't listened to it in my head. I don't know. He'll come up with something, but – but I, you know, I think we have to separate the two big questions. One is a political question. Do Democrats continue to, to, to charge ahead on this and, and, and make, it, make it central? You've pointed out that a lot of the 2020ers are, are, are moving on. Um, and then there's the, the, the substantive question, which, I, which there is, there's still a lot of really tough unanswered questions. And this question of obstruction of justice, the reason why Barr, as he explained in his letter, felt that, that, was, that, that there was not a case of obstruction to be made against the president is because there wasn't an underlying uh, crime. Therefore, it's hard to get at the intent of why would he be obstructing 
uh, when when he didn't actually do anything wrong vis-a-vis collusion. But what we've learned, and the president clearly had reason to be worried about this, is that as the investigation went out, and this was not a fishing expedition, this was not a wide-ranging thing like Whitewater that went into vastly unrelated right. areas, is, is you saw that there were other things that the president might not have wanted prosecutors to get to. There was the entire hush money uh, uh, issue uh, that the Southern District of New York has mm-hmm. directly said the president, you know, was 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 party to illegal activity, uh, individual one, uh, not charged, but 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 a part of all of that operation. Um, and and the fact that all his you mentioned the, the the close associates going down, so maybe the president did have good you know plenty of reason uh, to uh, to obstruct justice, even if he wasn't guilty at the central specific focus that launched the investigation. But I will say this though, he did seem to hand the Democrats another issue to talk about, even as they were still trying to uh, Republicans were still trying to celebrate this cloud being lifted. Yeah, and that didn't take long. And and you know, within 24, 48 hours of this announcement on on Sunday night uh, of the of the the Attorney General's letter comes this surprise filing from what, the Justice Department, the Attorney General signing off on this, as well as the entire Trump Justice Department now on the record asking a federal court to throw out all of Obamacare, all of the Affordable Care Act. Now it's an interesting legal argument they have because. When the Supreme Court took up the ACA the first time around, and Chief Justice Roberts famously cast that deciding vote, uh, they, the, the Supreme Court decided this was a tax, and therefore it was a constitutional use of the uh, of Congress's authority. Now there is no longer actually any kind of penalty for not having health care. That was taken out as part of the tax reform bill that the Republican Congress and the president signed. Uh, But to this point, the position of the Justice Department was that you could take different pieces away of of Obamacare and still keep the underlying law. Now they're saying, throw the whole thing out. And John, that means pre-existing conditions. That means staying on parents' health insurance well into your 20s. All the popular parts of the bill. All the good stuff. I mean, I, I mean Republicans wanted to take out the unpopular stuff and leave in the popular stuff as a matter of policy. Right. Really, probably not something that's going to work. Uh, but but now they're on the record saying throw the whole thing out. Our colleague Mary Bruce got a chance to ask the president about this when he came up to Capitol Hill on Tuesday. What is your message to Americans who may be concerned about their health care? The Republican Party will soon be known as the party of health care. And I'll tell you, Democrats may help him know it that way, but but not in the way the president yeah, thinks. It already uh, was during the yeah. midterms. They I mean, were the already party a of social issue. Just hurt Republicans yeah. badly in the midterms. And this is on a silver platter exactly what, 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 what the Democrats would want for an issue. And what you heard in that answer was not a plan. There is no, plan, no, no Republican health care plan. No plan. Repeal and replace. Remember when they used to talk about that? No. This is strike down and then what? And then chaos. And maybe the calculation here is that that will force Democrats to the table. You have to deal with things like pre-existing conditions because of the chaos of this would cause for millions of Americans who depend on Obamacare's coverage. But, man, that is making quite a political gamble at this at this time. We're a long ways before this reaches any kind of a, a conclusion through the courts, probably at least a year away before it could ever reach a definitive answer at the Supreme Court. But this resets this as a central issue. And Democrats know how much mileage they got out of this in 2018 by becoming the party that wants to preserve health care. And they recognize that if you're talking about this as well as other big issues, you're then back on favorable political terrain. It is a gift for them on the very week that uh, it seemed like Barr had, uh, had, had cleared the president. And no plan, and I don't get a sense of an eagerness on the part of Republicans to dive into health care. You right watch. Now. You watch. That's the president's <laughs> call for, yeah, I don't, I'm not there yet. 
All right, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, our guest here on Powerhouse Politics, Janet Napolitano. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Janet Napolitano, somebody who has uh, one of the most packed resumes in American politics, former U.S. attorney for the District of Arizona, uh, the first attorney general of Arizona, woman attorney general of Arizona, governor of Arizona, first woman to chair the National Governors Association, secretary of Homeland Security, and now currently the president of the University of California. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, So you've got a new book out, How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. And, uh, and you come to us at, at, at a pretty interesting time. I do indeed. <laughs> because we just had some news in this town. Um, and it's, uh, I, I want to start right there. And we, we, we've heard from not Robert Mueller directly, but we've heard uh, some quotes uh, from, from Mueller's final report through, the, uh, through Barr's letter. And it seems like a pretty definitive conclusion uh, that there was no uh, collusion between Trump and his campaign and the Russian Russian efforts to undermine the election. And yet I still hear um, top Democrats like Adam Schiff uh, say, you know, they still believe there was collusion and are determined to continue to investigate. Is it time on that question for Democrats to move on? Look, I think, um, you know, one of the things that's clear from the indictments that have issued from the special counsel, from Barr's cover letter um, about the, the report uh, one thing that is clear is that the Russians were all over our 2016 election. Uh, they were hacking, hacking the Clinton campaign, releasing those emails. Uh, they were planting deceptive and false stories in different social media platforms, um, all designed to disadvantage Hillary Clinton and to advantage Donald Trump. I think a key question and where I'd like to see the Democrats go uh, where I'd like to see the country go is what are we doing to prevent this from happening in 2020? Uh, what are we doing to uh, uh, sanction the Russians for directly interfering in our democracy? Uh, what are we doing to strengthen our election systems? What are we doing with the purveyors of the of the uh, particularly the large social media platforms, the the Facebooks and the Twitters uh, to uh, um, uh, unmask some of this misleading uh, placement of, of material there. So um, I, I think we need to be looking forward. And, and you're exactly right in terms of, of what Mueller, I think that lost in, in some of the coverage here is Mueller chapter and verse uncovered what the Russians did far beyond the initial intelligence assessment on this. 26 Russians indicted. Uh, he, he connects the lines directly between the specific individuals and entities that were behind that uh, deceptive, uh, real fake news uh, media, uh, social media campaign, and the hacking both of Podesta's emails and the and the DNC emails, absolutely. Um, but there was so much politically with the in terms of the ant- anticipation of the Mueller report, Democrats. Many who we spoke to, many who heard from publicly and certainly privately, got a sense that this was going to be the thing that was going to bring down Donald Trump. Not expose the Russians, but Donald Trump. Your former colleague, John Brennan, uh, was on television not that long ago saying that this would end, he, he believed, with a whole series of, uh, of indictments uh, that Mueller, you know, had you know, people right around the president. So understand your point entirely on making sure our election system is 
uh, its integrity is assured. But what about that? What about the, you know, this 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 effort that has been kind of an article of faith on Democrats that it was not just the Russians that did it, but but Donald Trump was the one, and his campaign was the one working with the Democrats to do it, with with the Russians to do it. Well, you know, I think without seeing the full Mueller report, um, uh, you know. Right now, we're left with his conclusion, and I worked with uh, Bob Mueller when he was director of the FBI. I have the highest respect uh, for him and the team of prosecutors that he assembled. Um, So uh, I don't know about that. I mean, I think there's an open question uh, about why, you know, why the Russians uh, were so invested in supporting Trump versus uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. We don't know the answer to that question. Um, uh, one thing that Mueller answers is, well, did did the Trump campaign actively solicit, act, actively collude with the Russians uh, on this? And he says no. Right now, I have no reason to, to doubt him. So, you know, Congress will do what Congress does. But again, I don't think it should lose sight of the, to me, more pertinent question Looking at this forward. point in time. Where are we for 2020? In your book, you lay out a lot of the steps you took as, as a U.S. attorney, as a governor, uh, and then as Homeland Security Secretary on immigration in particular. And, and I want to wrap it into the, the a broader question because you pose it, the, the title of your book, How Safe Are We? You, you're critical of President Trump and the Trump administration for their focus on the U.S.-Mexico border, for uh, for misstatements regarding it, for their handling of DACA, a program that you had to sign off on as Homeland Security Secretary. Do you believe that we are safer or less safe as a result of the last two years, the Trump administration uh, and their Department of Homeland Security? Well, I, I think that the overfocus on the conditions at the southwest border uh, uh, comes uh, with it, you know, uh, the we we'll call it the opportunity cost. If you if you're looking at one area, what what are you not looking at? What are you not investing in as the alternative? And uh, to me, the larger risks to the safety of the American people are not the conditions at the southwest border, which are far from crisis conditions, uh, but uh, the aspects of climate change that affect our security, um, the cyber and cybersecurity issue, the phenomenon of mass gun violence, which has risen in our country. Those are the things that I think the department should be focused on. So do you think we are less safe because of those, the, 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 the focus being off in that way? Um, I think um, at, at, a, at a minimum, uh, we are distracted. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to kind of put out there what I think are the real risks facing the American people uh, and where I think DHS ought, ought to be going uh, in the future. And, and what, what do you see as, as the, the, the central threat? Um, I just said it. I said, you know, um, when, when you think about Homeland Security, um, look, it, it is not an agency designed to guarantee everybody's safety 100 percent of the time. Uh, that's an impossible standard. What it's designed to do um, and should be doing is reducing risk, reducing risk of uh, uh, unsafe air travel. Uh, reducing uh, risk of being the victim of mass gun violence, um, reducing risk of 
being uh, the victim of a, of a, a major cyber attack that shuts down critical infrastructure, um, uh, reducing the risk of uh, uh, living in an, uh, an area being subjected to, to uh, deadly wildfire. Um, so when you, think nation, about, uh, when you think about reducing risk, uh, um, that is, to me, where the focus ought to be. And so when you overly focus on the southwest border, uh, just by definition, you're, you're if I can use <laughs> under-focusing, if that's a word, <laughs> uh, you're under-focusing on these other critical areas. But but if you look at that that long list of things from firefights, fire, wildfires to, to to gun violence to to the big cyber attack, what what, what is I mean you, you want to reduce all those risks, but but what poses the greatest threat to our country or, or how how worried are you know are you I, I think about a, a a cyber attack that would take out our um, you know our uh, our. GPS system or banking, electric or grid. electric grid. Sure, yeah. Uh, what what? How prepared are we for that? That, that? that seems to be of an order of magnitude much greater than the other ones you mentioned. Right. So, um, uh, and and I would actually probably rank cyber and climate right there at at the top. Uh, and on cyber, you're exactly right. Um, it, the threat to our nation's critical infrastructure is pervasive. It, it's already been attacked um, in different ways. Um, and our nation's critical infrastructure, our banking system, uh, our utility systems, our water systems, they're basically in private sector hands. And so um, the government, DHS, the other agencies of, of the government, are called on to work with the private sector to uh, strengthen uh, the protections that, that, that they are deploying. And, you know, I don't think that work is going very well, quite frankly. Um, and it's enormously complicated. I don't want to underestimate uh, how complicated this is. We also need to work with other countries because, as we know, in an Internet world, the Internet doesn't respect national boundaries. Um, and so uh, we need to be reaching out, reaching out to our um, allies um, and exchanging actionable intelligence uh, on a real-time basis. Uh, that's also part of this um, cybersecurity um, era. I was fascinated to read in your book about something totally different. You, you, you wrote this. This is a chapter of your history that I wasn't familiar with personally about your first real exposure to the national political scene around the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings. That you were one of Anita Hill's attorneys at the time. I, I, it's interesting because it's in the news now. This is, I want you to listen to this. This is uh, Vice President Biden, who was, of course, chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, speaking just last night. When Anita Hill came to testify, she faced a committee that didn't fully understand what the hell it was all about. To this day, I regret I couldn't come up with a way to get her the kind of hearing she deserved, given the courage she showed by reaching out to us. You, you write in your book about witnesses that were prepared to testify that never had the opportunity um, to, to do so, and, quote, our client was treated horribly by the Judiciary Committee. Joe Biden was chairman of that committee. Uh, he's explaining it now by saying it was a bunch of white guys. Well, he was one of those white guys. Does, does that let him off the hook? Or what, do, you, do you feel like he is in any way responsible for the way that Anita Hill was treated back in 1991? You know, look, anybody who's had a long career in public service is, is going to have moments that, in retrospect, um, uh, they regret and would handle differently. Um, and, you know, the vice president and I have never actually spoken about 
the Thomas Hill hearing, although we worked together on many issues when I was secretary and he was vice president. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think in retrospect, he would have handled it differently. What's interesting to me is that the Senate as an institution uh, still s- seems to have made no progress since 1991 uh, when you have a Supreme Court nominee who um, is um, uh, where there where there's witnesses prepared to testify uh, about sexual harassment, sexual assaultive behavior that they uh, committed. And we saw that in the Kavanaugh hearing last year, um, which was uh, it was deja vu all over again, as far as I could tell. So some, something else that, that um, we've heard out of this, the vice president, of course, has, has apologized for his performance and said he wished he could do things differently. We've heard from Anita Hill, though, who says she's never actually heard from the vice president about this directly, that she's never gotten that direct apology. You know her pretty well. Does, do you think she should get an apology from the former chairman of that committee? Well, I think um, uh, I think the vice president's been pretty clear that he regrets uh, what occurred, and you know whether he he needs to call her personally, whatever. That's that's his judgment. But uh, um, uh, again, I think uh, you know he regrets what occurred, but institutionally, the Senate has not advanced. So, speaking of Biden, you were with him on Monday. I was. Um, is he running? <laughs> like everybody else, I do not know. We're going to wait for his announcement. What's, what was your vibe from him? Does, does this look like somebody that's getting ready to jump in? I mean, that's certainly what a lot of people close to him are saying. He's, you know, he's ready to go. He's, he's, he's running. Um, we haven't heard from him. Uh, Rick knows I have my doubts of whether or not he actually pulls the trigger. But but did you, was the vibe you got that he's that he's ready to go? You know, um, he was interviewing me about my book. Yeah, and know, so we were good. talking about my you book. Asked a few and, questions. Uh, that, really. My book entitled <laughs> "How Safe Are We?" Uh, uh, currently available. Um, uh, and so uh, we didn't we didn't talk about it. But you know, I think um, he would certainly enter the race as an extraordinarily strong candidate. Put your political hat on for, for a moment. You're seeing this extraordinary large uh, group of candidates running. You were Democrat elected governor of Arizona. You know what it's like to win in places where Democrats don't have unparalleled, unbridled success. A lot of the candidates that we're seeing run come from very blue parts of the country. What does what does what is the field lacking in your mind, or do you have any concerns about where the field is heading that maybe Joe Biden could rectify by moving the party a bit back to the center? Look, I'll tell you what I'm going to be listening for uh, in, in the candidates. Uh, I'm going to be listening for an element of pragmatism, uh, uh, good policy aspirations, but pragmatic ways for us to get there, uh, a real focus on uh, the issues affecting Americans. Healthcare, I would put right up there. Uh, wage stagnation and inequality, I would put right up there. Um, uh, the future of work in our country, um, as we have, you know, greater deployment of uh, automation and AI and all those kinds of things. Well, what's the future of work going to be? Uh, so I'm going to be listening, uh, both for aspiration and for pragmatism, and then I'm going to be uh, looking for a candidate who has that little spark of inspiration, who can. Uh, motivate a crowd, maybe a very, and hopefully a very disparate crowd, 
uh, um, and and bring them together. So, so uh, the field is still young yet. So we'll have to see. So when you listen to the 2020 candidates, to some of the, the, the figures newly prominent in the House of Representatives, and you hear the Green New Deal, you hear uh, talk of free college tuition for everybody, you hear about abolishing ICE, you hear about Medicare for all. Um, are you getting a sense that, that there's a risk here that the party may be moving too far away from pragmatism and towards a uh, t- too far to the left? Well, I think uh, what I've uh, read uh, today is that um, President Obama met with uh, the freshman House Democrats, I think, Monday night. Right. Uh, and he, too, cautioned uh, that um, aspiration needs to be tempered by pragmatism. And uh, how are we going to pay for all of these nice aspirational goals? And that's what I mean when I say I'm going to be listening for a president who has aspirational goals that I believe in, but also a, 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 a good idea about what it will take to move us there. All right. Thank you so much for your time, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Honor to talk to you, and we hope you come back and talk to us again soon. We didn't even get to University of California and the, the admissions scandal uh. and all of that, but we know you have to run a lot more to talk to you next time you come back. Thanks very much. Thank you. But that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. A thank you to our entire Powerhouse Politics team, uh, including Susie Liu filling in for the vacationing Trevor Hastings. We don't know where he is. Who did that? Uh, and also, yeah, someone. Who knows? Uh, and also the, the entire team, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, and Annika Merrilies. Thank you for listening. <laughs>